Tonight we're beginning the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be going through this book verse by verse with the verse by verse flow and feel, but with topical in it. And we'll see how the Lord leads us as we go through it. But as we come to the Gospel of Matthew, it's great to be back in the New Testament with a full book for the first time in quite some time. And we've been from Genesis to Second Chronicles for the last almost four years. And that's been exciting on Tuesday night and into Saturday night. But tonight we return to the New Testament verse by verse, and I'm very excited about that. As we come to the Gospel of Matthew, we come to that Gospel that, of course, is the first book chronologically as you go through the New Testament. And it's been perceived that way pretty much since the very beginning of the church age when the different books were led by the Holy Spirit to be put together. It has traditionally been there. And it's appropriate because Matthew's Gospel is that Gospel that presents Jesus, King of the Jews, to the Jews. And that's important because God's plan for salvation for all of us through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, that plan was prophesied from the dawn of creation with the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And then as the promises moved through Noah and then to Abraham and to the nation of Israel and whatnot, and ultimately through David, the line of the tribe of Judah and the line of David, which of course we've been studying for the last year or so in the Chronicles and Kings, it, it ultimately points to Jesus. So those hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus, but they're pointing through the Jewish people. Jesus was born to a Jewish family as the Son of God. And it's appropriate where Paul the Apostle said to the church in Rome that the gospel is the power of salvation to the Jew first and then the nations, the Gentiles. And so God set aside the nation of Israel, as we've been studying for the last few years at all of our services, in a covenant, but in that covenant they were the people of God, but they were the stewards of God, for the scriptures were entrusted to them and all those prophecies, but that in fact the promise of the Redeemer for humanity would be coming through their people. And so as Matthew was led to write the Gospel of Matthew and put together the accounts and records of Jesus, he does so in a very Jewish manner. He does it where he presents the scriptures time and time again as being fulfilled in the person of Jesus the Christ. Of course, the Jews look forward to their Savior, referring to him as the Messiah, which we also say Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And so he, as he was led by the Holy Spirit to write this gospel, that early church audience, the first generation of the church, was primarily Jewish, and then the gospel went out to all nations of which we are the fruit of here Tonight, So it has that Jewish element, quoting Old Testament and supporting who Jesus is by Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. And also, it's worth noting that the Messiah was going to come from the line of the great King David, and we've spent all these months studying the kings and the descendants of David, that this is the gospel where Jesus is referred to as the son of David more so than all the other gospels put together, because that's a key element, again, for Jesus being the one who fulfills those messianic promises for not just humanity as the Savior promised in Genesis 3.15 at the fall of humanity, but the Savior coming through the Jewish nation, the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So that's our background to the book, basic introduction. And so now we're going to pick it up in chapter 1, verse 1. And we start with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you think, hey, just when we thought we did every genealogy we possibly could in Chronicles, here we go. But as we go through this genealogy, you'll see how all that we've been in Chronicles connects to this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob. God changed his name to Israel. And Israel begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah, that is Bathsheba. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa. And Asa begot Jehoshaphat. That's one of our super kings right there, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. And Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. That's another great king. And Jotham begot Ahaz. Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Who, of course, we just studied the last couple weeks. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. After they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shatil, and Shatil begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abud. Abud begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Elihud. Elihud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Matan, and Matan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until Christ, the Christ, are 14 generations. Now, it's noteworthy these are not complete generations. They're put in clusters of 14 for easier for the reader to easier understand the basic timelines. So we start with Abraham, whom God made the promises to about 2000 BC, Father Abraham. And then Isaac, of course, was the son of promise. Then Isaac had Jacob. Jacob, God changed his name to Israel. Israel has 12 sons, become the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Judah, number four in the line. That's the line that the promises made that the king, the great king, the scepter, will not depart from Judah, comes through him. Then from the line of Judah, here comes David from the house of Jesse, and then all these other ones. So the purpose of this genealogy to a Jewish audience is to prove that Joseph, the stepdad of Jesus, because of course he's not the biological dad, had the royal line right to King David. And when you're saying that someone is the Messiah, there's two credentials they must have to be the Messiah. They have to be a descendant of Abraham, they have to be Jewish. And they have to be from the tribe of Judah and specifically of the house of David because God made those promises that David, the Messiah, would come through his descendants. So not just, you know, of all the Jews you could have at this time that this is written, and they were big on genealogies, it eliminates 11 tribes right away. And you just, all you have left is the tribe of Judah. And then you have to have this lineage. And this is what we have here. Now what's interesting about Jeconiah being named here is in the book of Jeremiah which was written before the captivity and during the captivity. Jeconiah was one of those last kings. He was not a king for a very long time at all. He, he found some mercy with the Lord, but Jeconiah, God said that no descendant of Jeconiah would ever be in the messianic line, which brings an interesting thing here because having been in ministry for 35 years, whenever I read a commentary on that, I'm like, wait, so why is this genealogy here? Because it proves the qualification, and yet, in the same sense, it proves the disqualification. It's qualified straight up, 
But because if it, Jesus truly was the biological descendant of Jeconiah, then he's disqualified. So really, it, 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 it makes you think like, wait a second. He's qualified, but he's not. And by the way, most anyone who would claim to be the Messiah would probably not be qualified because the kings would come from Jeconiah. It presents a, a riddle, an enigma to, to the religious leaders. Like, yeah, when you really think about it, who can even be qualified? Because, of course, when they came back from Babylon with Ezra, who we studied, with Zerubbabel, who we studied Tuesday night, and then when Ezra and then Nehemiah and all of them came back, they never had a king again. So there was Jewish leadership from 535 B.C. on the return until Christ came, but that's a half a millennium, 500 years, and there were no kings after that. And so they were looking for a king, and that's why they would say to Jesus, are you the Messiah, or do we look for another, right? So... This genealogy is important because it shows technically on a royal line he is as qualified as you can get, but because almost all that are qualified would be disqualified, this king of the Jews has to be more than just the son of a Jew. He's got to be something more than that. He's got to be the son of God. That's what it really points to. So this genealogy gives us Jesus right away and would make any Jewish reader go like, well, now hang on, wait a second. Uh, it's a, Okay, well, let's, we'll think about that. Which brings us now to verse 18. And of course, in the Gospel of Luke, we have the genealogy of Jesus that goes all the way back to Adam, but goes a different route through the Virgin Mary. Now, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together intimately or sexually, she was found with child by the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus means Savior. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, the prophet Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her intimately till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So really... We get the genealogy of Jesus, but the birth of Jesus. In fact, we get the narrative. Verse 18 says, this is the birth of Jesus as follows. So tonight, we're going to look at the birth of Jesus in application and in the, as a main topic and look at the applications God would have for us with this. The first thing that's an absolute must for us to be saved is the application that she's with child of the Holy Spirit. So we see that in verse 18, that she became pregnant in a way that no other woman has ever become pregnant. In a universe with trillions of galaxies in which billions of people have been birthed into the world through the natural process and order that God's given, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And, and the whole immaculate conception, there's just such a mystery to it, you can never fully, we just can't fully get it. Like, some things you can get, and just some things you can't. But Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's, he's the Son of God, a title, and the Son of man. He's eternal, and yet he came to earth. 
And the significance of the virgin birth is, is crucial and critical because in the Gospel of Romans, excuse me, in the book of Romans, and many of you are familiar with, you know, Romans Road, but in Romans, we're told that, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when Paul was being led to lay out the gospel in clarity and a deeper understanding, you know, he made very clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Solomon, the son of David, had also said the same thing in the Proverbs, that we're all sinners. And so we recognize right away when Adam and Eve sinned and they chose to rebel against God, they sinned, thus death entered the world and all die through them. So in their original sin, you and I, the moment we're conceived and each cell is replicating to create who we are in the womb of our mother, which as David said so well, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Even while we're being developed in the womb, we're dying at the same time. In that sense, we have a death sentence in us. As every cell in our body forms us in the womb in such a beautiful way, and this beautiful baby comes in the world, we know you give that baby 90 years, and they're going to go from that soft skin of a baby to what we look like when we're 90. Because actually, it's, we're, it's appointed of men to die once, and then the judgment, as David said, we go the way of all men. And uh, Moses said that the days... For us, fashion, there are 70 years by measure of strength, 80 years. And we know that, you know, you kind of, the flower of your youth looks like, well, when you're young, you think the flower of your youth is like 25. But when you're 60, the flower of your youth looks like pretty good at 45. Right? Like, I keep saying, hey, you know, 50 is the new 30, man. <laughs> 50 never looks so good until you're in your 60s. You're like, man, 50 wasn't so bad. It was all right, you know? Uh, so all you people that are turning 50 in the next few years, don't feel bad about it, you know? And I'm sure when I'm 80, I might look back and go, you know, 60 is young, 60 is young. There's so much you can do when you're 60. But we all, we all die. And we know that when sin entered the world and death entered everything, death entered everything. It changed the entire ecosystem, the, everything. There was no death. Plants would do things that plants do where they die and reproduce, and God had a completely vegetarian world and universe in place. There was no death. Death did not enter. All the death we know in the animal kingdom, everything, there was no death till sin. And we don't know how long it was in time, space, and matter that existed, but it did exist. And it was beautiful. And it was all forfeited. And then Adam and Eve were expelled. And then animals turned on each other. Their own children turned on each other. Thus, death entered the world. And all sin and all die. And men became so evil, God completely judged the world once. And if you think about that for a minute, that is amazing to think about. I was thinking about Sodom and Gomorrah the other day, like what it would have been like to be Lot and just see like literally fire and brimstone come down on planet Earth. Like that would just be like, and for real, not some, you know, movie you go pay 20 bucks to go see in a theater, like some apocalyptic movie that you, no, this is for real. But so evil is sin that God wiped out the world once with the exception of the house of Noah. And we're here as an extension of that. And sin brings death. Now, we're told in 1 Corinthians that in the first Adam, all die. Now, Christ is the second Adam, which takes us back to the virgin birth and the immaculate conception. Because in Luke's gospel, the genealogy takes Jesus right on past Abraham and just goes all the way back to the dawn of creation and Adam. And it starts with that Jesus is the second Adam. And we're told in 1 Corinthians that while we all, all die in Adam, all are made alive in the second Adam, Jesus. And while we're told that 
unrighteousness and death entered through one man, even so righteousness and life enters to us through another man, Romans 5, in Christ. So the virgin birth is essential because the wage of sin is death. So I can't save you because I'm born a sinner. And there has to be substitution for death, which, of course, the Passover lamb and all the sacrifices we saw going through Chronicles in the revivals where they reinstitute the animal sacrificial system. So God established right away with righteous, well, with Adam and Eve when he covered them with covering and blood was shed. An animal died, which would have been a shocker for them in their perfect world. And then Abel understood the concept of that. And so he brought an offering to the Lord that had blood. He sacrificed a lamb. He understood that for his sin with the wage of death over him, that someone else would pay the price for that so he could be forgiven of that sin. And from Abel all the way to the time Christ came, this is what the Jewish people and people of faith understood. Somebody's got to die. Something's got to die. And the animal substitution system was put in place by God. But the book of Hebrews makes clear for us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away our sin. Now, you can't die for me and I can't die for you because we're under the death sentence. We die for our own sins. And as much as you might lay down your life for me, and Jesus said, greater love has no man or woman than one who would do that, and that's a beautiful thing. We might lay down our life for our family, take a bullet, someone we love, you know, take the hit, whatever. But we cannot help them in the next dimension. Our death in this dimension cannot be a substitute for the accountability and judgment upon sin in the next dimension. Because we can only die for our own sins, and we have the inability to take away someone else's sins by dying for them. And the same goes for the animal kingdom, because man is not created in the image of animals. We're created in the image of God. Therefore, one greater than us must die in our place. And the only way Jesus can become the acceptable substitute Savior, for he'll save my people from their sins, his people from their sins, is he has to be equal or greater than us to die in the place for our sins. Thus, God himself came to die on the cross for our sins, and his death and substitution would not be acceptable if he were a sinful man. If he's a sinful man, he's like the criminals on both sides of the cross next to him. He had to be born of a virgin as the son of God. He doesn't have the seed of Adam in him through his father Joseph because Joseph is his stepfather. His father is our heavenly father. As he said, my father and I are one. So the virgin birth is an essential truth to the gospel and to our salvation. This is why it's very alarming when any pastor or minister, male or female, says they believe in Jesus and they follow Jesus, but do not affirm and believe the virgin birth. The virgin birth is essential for salvation because if Jesus is not born of a virgin, he is an unacceptable sacrifice for our sins to die in our place. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us when he died on the cross and then through his resurrection so we become the righteousness of God through faith in him by the power of the Holy Spirit. That equation does not work if he's just a sinner like you and me. So this is so crucial to establish the virgin birth. And being raised Catholic, I was taught that, and I didn't think much about it. But I can assure you, once I really understood that Jesus truly died in my place for my sins, I understood why this is so significant. And I tell you, I feel very sorry for people who say they're Christians 
or they love God and believe in God who do not believe in the virgin birth because the virgin birth is essential for substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And it can only, our sins can only be forgiven and we can only be promised eternal life through faith in the one who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life and becomes the acceptable sacrifice for our sins. Not you dying for me, not me dying for you and definitely not bulls and goats, but God himself coming as a man to die in our place. That is the acceptable sacrifice, and that only takes place by being born of the virgin. Can you imagine when Isaiah prophesied this around 725 B.C.? People were like, what? And it was during the time of Ahaz, too. Remember, Ahaz was the worst. Ahaz was like, how's that even? That's how people that are like that, they're just like that. But people that are spiritual, like, someone was like, maybe someone later on, Hezekiah, like, years later, would be going like, what? Hey, Isaiah, what's that virgin birth thing? Like, how's that work? Well, we don't know. Till it happens. Till the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary and says, you're going to conceive a child. And that child in you is God, the son of God. So we understand that the birth of Jesus is as such. It's essential. It is just absolutely essential, the virgin birth. It's an essential of the faith. And on that note, I would say this. When you compare Jesus to other religious leaders, this is what so sets him apart. There's many things that set him apart, but the virgin birth is for sure one of them. Because you can look at any religious leader of, uh, or philosophical leaders. For example, when the Jews went into captivity, right about the time they went to captivity, guess who lived? Buddha in the East. You know who else lived at the same time? Confucius. Buddhism and Confucianism are two of the most influential f- philosophies and religions on the world right now. On the, on the rising east. And, you know, like, they said some things that make sense. You know, like, don't lose your temper. That works, right? There's nothing wrong with saying don't lose your temper, whether it's Confucius, Buddha, or Jesus. The man that controls himself is better than one who takes the city, is what Solomon said. But they're philosophical leaders. Their belief systems, their philosophies for life, they might make you feel better about yourself when you wake up in Santa Monica and go to work in Hollywood, but they won't save you on the day of the Lord. They are not acceptable sacrifices for our sins. So you can, be, you can be a better husband, you can be a better wife, and you can be a better citizen in downtown Los Angeles, but they cannot save you from your sins. And Socrates and those guys about 200 years later, so all those Greek philosophers, they cannot save you from their sins. They may have said great truths about wisdom and certain principles of this universe that are in play, whether you believe in Jesus or not. Because there's certain truths that are spiritual and true, just like gravity is for for the physical realm. But they can't save you. Only Jesus can save us because he's born of the virgin. Understand, body of Christ? This is what separates us. When you go away to college and they put Jesus on the same list as Buddha, Moses, Muhammad, Confucius, this this is the great distinction. This is the foundation of him being savior. Now, the second thing we see is he says you'll call his name Jesus. Yeah, because he's called the Savior. He's the Savior. It's basically the, you know, the New Testament equivalent of Joshua in the Old Testament. It, it means Savior. He's the Savior. You're, he, his, he's the Savior, and his name is Savior. So it makes sense. Jesus' identity is his name that he'll save his people. It says, in fact, for he will save his people from their sins. That's an interesting phrase because he, he came to the Jews first. In fact, I'm reading ahead in Matthew in my personal devotions, taking my time, and I just read where he sent out the 12 apostles, and he said, don't go 
to anyone but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In his ministry, though he made deviations to minister to Gentiles or non-Jews, that was not his focal point, nor that of the apostles. For three years, he presented himself to the nation of Israel as the promised Messiah of their scriptures. It was to the apostles and the church that the Great Commission would come forth that the good news of Jesus would be Savior of the world to all of us. But when Jesus first sent out John and Andrew and Peter and the likes of them, James and John, in two by two, he said, only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Because the gospel is to the Jew first, then the Gentiles. He started with his people, Israel, because they had the scriptures. But as we see in the book of Acts, as Peter went out, as Paul went out, particularly Paul, they would start in the synagogue with the Jews, the people who had an understanding of the Old Testament, explain that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And in many cases, the Jews rejected them, the apostles. But the Gentiles like, wait, wait, say that again. <laughs> say that again. Can we come back here next week and do this whole thing all over again? Because that's really good news to us. Say that again. His people began with the nation of Israel. And on the cross, it says Jesus, the king of the Jews, in three languages. But when he's coming in glory, as Pastor Sam reminded the men this morning, he's coming on a white horse, and he's called the king of kings and lord of lords. When he comes to split the Mount of Olives, and he will. When he comes to rule on earth in his millennial reign, and he will. He's coming as king of kings, lord of lords. Right? So his people begins with Israel. The gospel's to the Jew first, but within a generation, it's to all nations. In fact, before he ascended into heaven, he told the apostles, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And again, comparing him to other world leaders, political, religious, philosophical, he's, ah, he's the Savior. He saves us from our sins. I was once at a Charger game years ago in San Diego. Great story. I suppose you had to be there. I was there with my, my friend Tony Mata, my surfing buddy, and I was a pastor by this time. And you, know, it's, you always take a risk when you go to the Charger Raider game at Jack Murphy Stadium back in the 80s. Boy, there's going to be fights. It's going to be a free-for-all. This guy came by with a sign saying, Jesus saves. Now, we're in the upper deck, and we had these super annoying Raider fans behind us. They were drinking. They are big, gnarly. They are gnarly. I'm telling you, they're like real Raider fans. Like, it probably came down from Oakland, you know, like just gnarly thug life times, you know, quantum. And a guy comes along with a sign. We're on the top level at Jack Murphy Stadium, Qualcomm, which no longer exists. And he comes along, and the sign says, Jesus saves. That's all he had was a sign that says, Jesus saves. And the guy behind me, Raider fan, is getting all, he's all tanked up, and he gets all saucy. He's like, Jesus saves what? Jesus saves who? And I jumped up. Uh-huh. <laughs> I turned around. I looked right at him. I said, he saves you from your sins. <laughs> Tony Mata about had a heart attack because I just took on Raider Nation in the third quarter when everyone's tanked up. The guy never said another word, and that was it. I reminded that guy in time, space, and matter that Jesus is the name that saves you from you, from your sins. Because God is good and all the time, God is because he's a savior. And everything he does is good. And we don't like to be saved. Raider fan didn't want to be saved. Me, three years before, Charger fan, I don't even want to save me. 
We don't like to be saved. But, you know, when the Spirit works on us and convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, we realize we must be saved. And we can't save ourselves. In my book, which is going to take a while because it just got shredded by an outside editor, but it's all right, it's all right, the truth hurts, it's going to get better. But in my book, I tell three stories where I almost drowned in the ocean surfing. One of them was when I was 16 years old at Lania Kea on the north shore of Oahu. And I'd been out, I'd gone up there with the great Dane Kiloa. I was staying with Dane in Honolulu, and we drove up there together. And the surf, I was only 16 at the time, and the surf was getting bigger and bigger. And it had gone from 6 feet to 12 feet in about two hours. And I'd been out in the water for a couple hours, and I was a little blood sugar. And I, I was having a good session, about 50 people in the water. My leash broke, you know, it connects my board to my ankle. My leash broke. And I was like, oh, I'll just swim in. So I swam in. You know, Lonnie K is way out there. It's about 200, 300 yards to swim in from there. But I used to be a competition swimmer. So I, I came in, but I got to find the board. It was a town and country board. It wasn't my board. And it was a white board. And so this Hawaiian guy looks at me and he goes, hey, brother, over there. And I see a board in the channel of Lonnie K going toward Himalayas. So there's a board out there in the water about 150 yards out floating by itself. He's like, hey, buddy, there's your board right there. I was like, I got to go get that board. So I swim out there. I start swimming after the board. Now, I, this is before the California kid. I was, I'm like a junior in high school at this time. Like, this is, uh, like, and the surf is the first time in my life where I'm in Hawaii where it's going from 6 to 12 feet in two hours. So I'm swimming out there for this board, and I go right into the rip, you lifeguards, Huntington Junior Guard, you people, you know, I go right into the rip after this board, and I'm on the conveyor belt going to Kauai. And I'm swimming after this board, and I realize once I'm about 200 yards from the beach that I'm no closer to the board than I was when I started. But now I'm out of Himalayas, and now the surface is like 15 feet, and there's no one near me. Because Lonnie K is over here by 7-Eleven, and I'm over here by Shoreline. And I don't even think anyone knows I'm in the water. And I realize I'm in a very dangerous situation. Still to this day, the scariest moment in my life in the water. I, I, I tell three stories with bigger waves, but this one, when you're 16, terrifying. And I suddenly realized my life is in jeopardy right now. And forget the board. I got to get back to the ocean or back to the beach. I look on the beach. A couple hundred yards away, I see the Hawaiian guy holding up a white surfboard. It's my board. He had me swim after his board. He hid my board and had me swim after my board. And I was doing this. So he hops on that board. It takes him about 15 minutes to get to me. He gets out to me. He doesn't say much. We don't say much. And together it takes us about 15 minutes, 20 minutes to get back to the beach. We got back to the beach. Uh, never were two people so relieved. I was relieved because I was alive. And he was relieved because he didn't send me to my death. For real. And I got back in the car with Dane and his Volkswagen bug and went back to town. Like I don't, I don't even remember what we even said. I don't think Dane even knew. But I knew I almost died and that God had delivered me. And listen to me. I could not save myself. Now, when I got a 50-foot Waimea Bay, I had my board, I had my wits, and I found a way back to the beach. When I was without my board in 20-foot Sunset Beach going in circles before dark, I was able to do it on my own. But that Lania K experience when I was 16, I would have drowned. I would have drowned and I would have died. I had to be saved. Someone had to save me. And the Hawaiian guy that hid my board, who almost sent me to my grave, was the one who saved me that day. We don't like to be saved. It goes against our pride, but Jesus is our Savior, and he saves us from our sins. So anyone listening to me in this sanctuary, 
or on this broadcast or any future podcast from this study, just know this. You must be saved. And you might be able to figure your way out of 50-foot Waimea Bay or even 20-foot sunset. But sooner or later, you're at 15-foot Himalayas and somebody has to save you. When we get into eternity, there's only one Savior that can save us for eternity, and it is Jesus Christ. The name above every name, the name by which the whole universe revolves around, and the name by which every knee must bow and confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. His name is Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. We are saved, and we become his people. Isn't that a beautiful thing, body of Christ, WG? And he's been saving people for 2,000 years since the day of Pentecost, and he'll keep saving till the trumpet sounds. He's a savior, and that's who he is. And we're just reminding that tonight, that, that we're saved by grace, that through faith, and the whole universe, trillions of galaxies and billions of people that ever lived, it all revolves around the name of Jesus Christ. All, for all things are made by him and for him, and him all things consist. And it was the apostles who said it, said Hedrick Council, there is no other name given men by which we must be saved. So as we begin this journey in the Gospel of Matthew, I remind us all, we are saved through personal faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of the Virgin. But there's one more element to it, which is so beautiful in this text. So she's with child of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin birth. You'll call his name Jesus, and that's the name that saves us, and we must be saved. But then we see, verse 23, Emmanuel, God, which is translated God with us. Not only does his name mean Savior, to save us from our sins, and the initial problem of the fall of man in the garden with Adam and Eve, but God with us. Like God is for us. God is with us and for us. God so loved the world he gave his son. We love him because he first loved us. Body of Christ, it is good to be reminded tonight that God is for us and he's with us. As he said through Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's funny, before I came to Christ with my Catholic background, having some truth and just having all other kinds of beliefs apart from that, it's funny, I always wanted mercy for me, but I wanted judgment on people that were against me. Can you relate to that? Like, oh, I was like, I want, I want God on my side. In fact, the first time I read in Romans chapter 8, if God is for you, who can be against you? I really like that verse. I'm like, oh, God's for me. I can do anything I want. God's for me. Of course, that's how you get world wars um, when you start thinking like that. History shows that. But he really is for us. Not for our agenda, but for his calling on our life. God with us. What a beautiful thing. That you could follow the philosophies of men or the religions of men and, again, be inspired by things that have elements of truth but you can never say that God is with you. Because we're told when we receive Christ, we become born of the Spirit, and God comes in us. And he's there to lead and guide us in all truth, to give us discernment. It's, it's a beautiful thing to know that God literally is not just with us, around us, and aware of us, but he literally comes in us, and he guides us. And that's why it says that the peace of God rule in your heart, like an umpire in Colossians. It's the Holy Spirit saying, Yes, no. Yes, no. God with us. We're not left to our own. And to be transformed from glory to glory, as it says in 2 Corinthians, we are not left to our own. It's the Spirit of God that's transforming us as in a mirror 
from glory to glory, and we're not left to our own. I don't have to wake up. You don't have to wake up. No believer in the church age has ever had to wake up and say, I've got to do this. We only need to wake up and say, Lord, here I am. I'm yours. You do this. That's how, that's how it works. Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's the Spirit of God working us. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the gifts of the Spirit. It's the baptism of the Spirit. It's, it's God's working in us. Taking us from being dead in Adam to alive in Christ. And taking us from a, a dying person to a growing person. And though the outward woman, the outward man is perishing, the inward woman, the inward man by the Spirit is being renewed daily. God is with us. And in the context is really that when Jesus walked the earth, it's God with humanity. If you ever really stop and think about it, in a, in a generation of people, in their world that they lived in, God came into their world. When you're looking at Jesus, you know, we all, most of us have seen the Chosen series, and it's like, wow, like, wow. It's like, can you imagine, like, when Jesus looks at you, like, whoa, you know, like, like, God walked on planet Earth. The Son of God, Jesus, came. And he, everything, think about this, everything he said and everything he did and in every way he responded was perfect. And we're going to see this in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to see it. We're going to see how God looks upon this, that, this, and that. In fact, John said it really well in the beginning of his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a title for Jesus, the Word. So with God is God. And then it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, so God eternal, the Son of God, came into the world and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. No one has ever seen the Father, but he, the Word, the only begotten of the, the Father, the Son, has declared him to us. So when we go through the Gospel of Matthew, we get to see, yet again, some of us may be new in the faith, some of us very mature in the faith, we get to see how God is with us and how he, his actions, his words, and really the purpose of his coming as the Savior to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the grave for our justification, but really how he acts, how he deals with the religious hypocrisy, how he deals with broken sinners, how he deals with people who are completely helpless to their plight, their daughter dying, Jairus' daughter, or the man from Capernaum and his son. Like We're going to see it all. I'm excited to teach the Gospel of Matthew because we're going to see how Jesus looks at, looked at these people when he walked among us, and we're going to learn from these scriptures that are written for our admonition with the confirmation by the Spirit, we're going to see how he looks at you. We know at the beginning of this journey that God is with us and God is for us. We're going to know at the end of Matthew how much he's with us and for us. And that our, our very purpose in life is to fulfill the call of God on our life, the upper call of God on our life. Looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and when we wake up in the morning, there's one purpose and ever the purpose comes under it. So I remind you again tonight, it is to fulfill, to fulfill the call of God upon your life. Your relationships with your family, your, your relationships with the body of Christ, your relationships with humanity, they all come from that. We exist to know God and fulfill his purpose in our life. 
when we come to Christ and we receive him, God is with us. And he's with us to fulfill what he's created us for, for time, space, and matter in this realm, and for all eternity. So we're going to be reminded as we go through Matthew that he's with us and for us. In all these stories we're going to read, all these scriptures fulfilled, we're going to be reminded, worship generation, how much God loves us and how much he is for us. The fullness of time and all the events in this universe. I was with the famous photographer, Aaron Chang. My wife and I were about a couple weeks ago at his gallery in Solana Beach, and he has these photos of the entire Milky Way. He's incredible, like National Ge- Geographic. Like he's, the highest, he's the greatest surf photographer of all time. And, but he had a picture of Joshua Tree, which many of us know out there in the high desert. And I said, how'd you get this photo? And he goes, well, the Milky Way rises at about 1 in the morning on this cycle, and he's just sitting there right underneath like a, a Joshua Tree. And he got this shot. And it's just one of those shots where you just go like, you think like David in Psalm 8, what is man, when I consider the heavens, what is man that you're even mindful of him? Like, I'm looking at this Aaron Chang photos in his, ga- in his uh, gallery there in Solana Beach going like, who am I? What am I? Like, I'm so insignificant. You know, when you look at gal- the Milky Way galaxy, I'm like, wow. But you know, in that giant galaxy, which is just one of trillions of galaxies, Jesus knows every hair on our head and he loves you and he's for you. And all the macro universe right down to the microscopic universe, it revolves. This entire universe outside of time and inside of time, every dimension of this universe, everything that we see that's created revolves around Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the second Adam. Be encouraged, worship generation. He, 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 he's born of the virgin. He is, he's the one that can do it. He is the Savior, and he's with us, and he's for us. Yes, and amen.